Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Uh, welcome to Speaking of Reliability. My name is Chris Jackson. And this is Fred Schenkberg. Hey, Chris. Hey, Fred. I was wondering if you're up for a conversation about a book I know you read most nights after you put down the Bible, and that's Mill Handbook 217F. F, F. F. That's the latest one, what, 25 years ago? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I think that I still don't know how, like, you know, MTBFs or horses and buggies in there, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it, you sprung this on me. You you realize that this is our 900th episode, and you're going to talk about Mill Handbook 217. Oh, this cathartic. Look at it okay, that way. All right, Good right, for yeah. you. Yeah, thanks. All right, that'll get me back into it anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> the reason I talk about it because I'm teaching a course right now, and one of the one of my students says, "Look, how do I deal with this problem when I need to sort of I'm as a he's a cut from the customer organization, the supplier slash manufacturer." Uh, has essentially said, um, look, here's our thing. Um, the, the device in, in question, it's got a bit of a sorted history. It was originally designed by the company that existed before this supplier sort of came and took it took it over. So this current supplier inherited a design. It's up to version or model six right now. But um, much of the reliability and safety stuff is based on versions two and three or generations two and three of these things which aren't obviously sold anymore mm -hmm. but one of the things that the, the my student was saying was part of their justification about saying yeah this is this meets the requirements is that they say well the components we use according to the handbook 217f they have mtbfs of this this and this and so therefore we're good and you go oh man that's uh <laughs> that's a that's a it's a head scratcher isn't it um yeah yeah because he's just he's just started to realize that you know by virtue of doing this course that um yeah mill, mill handbook 217 really isn't anything anything at all that you should be uh hanging your hat on oh no and well it, there's it gets worse i remember oh, a couple of years ago i was talking to andre kleiner and he was talking about the and i think you and i talked about it at one point is that the european a set of european standards for safety we're calling out parts mm -hmm. count predictions as a basis for their safety calculations and prioritization and all other stuff. And 217 was allowed. It was, that's fine. You can use that. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, you're going backwards here now. It, it, yeah, I don't know where to start with 217 and the, using that as a justification. I usually ask them, so what, where's your evidence that any of this is accurate at all? And right. I usually, and I almost always ask, so given that, what's going to fail first? And how do you know that? What's your evidence? Yep. And it usually sets them back on their heels, but they're going to, if they're going to say 217, I'm going to pull up the letter from the U.S. Army saying it was retired. It was just, you know, don't use it. Yeah. You're not allowed to use it anymore. Yeah. Because of this issue, to be honest, it's, uh, I mean, to, to an extent, Mill, Mill Handbook 217, and let's just, let's just describe it for listeners who might not have heard of it. It's just a document which contains a bunch of best guesses at typical failure rates or MTBS for certain types of components. So if you want uh, to... It's using it, FITs, uh, failures in time, is instead of MTBS. They're using FITs. 
Yeah, well, I'll say failure rates or MTBF. So, yeah, I take your point. A failure rate yeah. is the inverse of the MTBF. Not everyone's heard of FITS. FITS stands for failures in time, which is one failure per billion hours, which is... Uh, and then you have to ask industry. whether it's British or English billion because they're <laughs> yes, you know, three orders of magnitude off from each other. And then it gets... It, now, when it when 217 first came around, it was a military thing and they were doing like um, submarines and aircraft carriers and stuff like that. And... They mm-hmm. needed a way to it just tally an estimate. And then they knew it was rough. They knew it was poor. But the, internally, though, they had all their own data. You know, they knew how long this pump's going to last. They knew how long this communication box lasts because they had dozens and dozens of hundreds of them in service. And they were, at the time, everything went to depot. And although I've heard stories from people working in those places that the data they were creating was pretty bogus. But we also did this at HP. When I first got there, talking to Dick Moss about 217, he said, we used to use this, but then we did all of our own repairs and did root cause analysis to the component level. We weren't swapping whole boards out. We weren't swapping whole boxes out. We were troubleshooting to the capacitor, to the resistor, to the op amp or whatever. And we kept track of that data. And we regularly confirmed that for that family of products, that that was representative of the field data. But as we started doing more consumer products and not doing detailed uh, failure analysis, um, that data got less and less and less valuable. Now, talking to the folks that way back when gathered this data from the military and in any public source they could find, it turned out the vast majority of it was pretty bad. Um, mm-hmm. and so 217 became drifted further and further and further away from any sense of reality. And there's all kinds of other issues with it, other than just bad data in, bad data out, or bad results. Um, but the idea was is that in concept, if you've got a really good details of how often this this type, this family of capacitors has failures in, in these specific environments. In theory, that should work. In practice, that's more difficult. Well, I think what Mill's Handbook 217 represents, it's it's immensely valuable for a very specific decision or scenario. And that is the rough business case or initial order of magnitude planning for supplies, spare parts, and everything else for a system at the embryonic stages of design. So if you're going to say, well, we're going to build a pump, or that's probably a bad example. We're going to we're going to build a radio. Yeah. Uh, we need to sorry, it's we need to get a thousand component. It's got a thousand components right. in it. And so you just want to have a ballpark understanding of how many spare parts you'll need to, to maintain it and everything else. Ballpark. And where you say, okay, we'll need to swap in this many capacitors or 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 or, or, or what have you. Um for that, I was about to say back of the beer coaster or napkin business case planning, it's, it can be a little bit more robust than that because you're making potentially a multi-million dollar decision to go or not go. But the failure rates in mill, mill standard 217 can help you just get an order of magnitude estimate on how many consumables you'll go through, i.e. how often things will fail and how many spare parts you'll need and how many people you'll need to, to maintain or repair your device, your system. But that's it. That's when it stops being useful because once you design your actual product, then you have to come up with your own 
understanding yeah. of what the actual failure rates are. Yeah, the, the basic premise was that every component has a possibility to cause a failure. Mm -hmm. well, well, that's not true. You know, in electronic circuits, the there's these little capacitors that are used to knock down uh, signal integrity and, and radiated transmissions and so on, right? If that capacitor mm -hmm. falls off, nobody would notice except somebody standing there with a really sensitive uh, device if that trace was susceptible to it. But I've ah. seen these electrical engineers just sprinkle capacitors all over the place because figuring out by circuit analysis which ones are going to be radi uh, radiant energy you know, creators or send off all these electromagnetic signals is really time-consuming and, and expensive. So I'm going to sprinkle 50 cents worth of capacitors all over the board. And if those fall yeah. off, it doesn't affect the circuit at all. But that's not what I said. I said for spare parts, Fred. Why not? Because if that, capac but but if, if that if, capacitor falls off, it needs to be replaced eventually. No, it doesn't. So <laughs> no. why is it there in the first place? Because the designer didn't have time to do all the detail analysis to figure out how to where they should go. So what I learned in, in practice, what I learned in practice is the first family was we're on time to market priority mm -hmm. to solve the problem of radiated emissions. Let's put capacitors everywhere. Right, just knock uh -huh. down all potential problems as they're happening. If that's not a problem in that particular trace, it doesn't matter whether that capacitor is there or not. The second generation of that product is that now they have the time to go through and say, do we really need this piece here? And they take off three-fourths of them and they save a bunch, they do a cost savings cycle on it. And so firsthand knowledge is that not every component, like if you've got a component on a, a circuit that it's only used in diagnostics during manufacturing, but it's really a critical diagnostic during the manufacturing process. Once the product ships, that part's unnecessary. So if it fails, if it falls off, if the solder cracks on it, who cares? You wouldn't even notice. But that's a very specific scenario. No, I'm no, just, no. There's, there's, I... and I can keep going. There's lots, lots oh, and lots and oh, lots. I know of you them. can keep going. Yeah, but the idea is, is that if if I got a thousand components and twenty, you know, two hundred and fifty of them are really not important for the functionality of this system, so they might fine tune it, or they might have a special case, or they're there just in case they're there because we, we're over-designing it because we just don't have time or whatever the scenario is, is those components count against your failure rate um, tally. They all count mm -hmm. equally as a critical component. Right. So I agree with you 100% is that once your design is done, you really need to look at, well, how does it really fail? What, what if, you know, it's kind of back to fault trees or other modeling techniques going, well, what are the critical pieces? What is the dominant failure mechanism? Where do we have the least margins? All of those kinds of questions. The parts count prediction doesn't give us that at all. I, I got it. But I, I, you're talking about design. I'm saying that's cool. But I was talking about that initial initial number. You need to get the rough order of magnitude understanding of how many parts you're going to go through. I, I think. Well, you still I, need, I don't think you need you to know what kind of parts they are. I got it. Okay. I got that. But again, so if you're going to have a, a thousand component radio, uh, radio I mean, it's, this is not the perfect example, but it doesn't need to be for the sake of this conversation. You say, oh, we, we have a rough idea. It's going to have this many of these components, this many of these components, this many of these components. 
If you're at a scenario where you know that, then you can use Mill Handbook 217 again to get a best guess, you know, a, a, a good understanding, goodish understanding of what you'll need to do to look after it. What would be a better example or better um, source of a rough guess? Like your previous model, the similar model, <laughs> the the other radios you got laying around? <laughs> Completely agree. I mean, it's, it's in the absence of anything else, but if you're at a startup company or you got to, you want to introduce a new product line, there are scenarios where you don't have a ton of data. And if you've got a rough order of magnitude guess from in terms of how much spare parts you'll need, but that's that's my point. That's what Mill Handbook gives you. It gives you a rough order of magnitude guess. If that rough order of magnitude guess is not good enough, then you need to do something else and not pretend Mill Handbook 217 is anything but a rough order of magnitude guess. I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll adamantly argue that's the case. I mean, yeah. maybe that rough order of magnitude guess means that you're either, uh, it, it, it means it clearly shows you shouldn't proceed anyway, in which case Mill, Mill Handbook 270 has has, has uh, done its job. It said it's um, meant you haven't gone in a path of an unsustainable product. Perfect. But like you said, as soon as you start designing something, your actual design needs to then replace the basic design that, uh, or basic guess at a, you, you, sorry, you guess at a basic design you use when you had that rough order of magnitude guess. But um, I completely agree. Once you start designing it, you'll need to have update your understanding of what system failure looks like. And I also, I also suggest that even even those redundant or Let's just say redundancy is the wrong term for those capacities you're talking about. Yeah, unnecessary. But yeah. 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 There's this, they were there for a reason. We know why and they're going to be cut out. But again, until you get the design process, you you don't have a good, you don't have good visibility on that, what that looks like, yeah. which means Mill, Mill Handbook 217 by the design phase is redundant. Going back to my point, certainly at the beginning, that it might help you make some decisions sometime. Yeah. Now I I go back to when I first questioned first time I ever did one of these parts comp predictions, I went and talked to Dick Moss about it, and I said, "What in mm -hmm. the world is this process?" And he goes, "Yeah, it's don't use it. it sometimes we have to for a, some contract, you know." And it was it was another major computer company was trying to buy some tape drives from us, and they huh? required as a part of the purchase requirements their the contract was a parts comp prediction, and. Ooh. <laughs> the guys doing the tape drives were like, it's ridiculous. It's useless. We we know exactly how this thing's going to fail and how often, you know, here's all the viable data. Here's all this. We They had down to really good information about how their system worked and didn't work. They wouldn't accept that at all. I guess they couldn't read it or understand it. It wasn't one number, I guess, <laughs> at the end of the day. And so they asked me to do it because they knew I had access to the software that they didn't want to go buy just for this one sale. And they said, well, I'll give it a shot. And I ran it. And I, about an hour into the process, I went and talked to Dick Moss and said, what in the world is wrong? This is, people use this? And he goes, yep. yeah, don't use it for anything useful. Um, if it helps the sale go through, that's great. And you learn about how bad this process is. He said, it does have a redeeming value though, is it encourages design teams to use fewer parts, be you know, because every component you add adds to the failure rate to it, according mm -hmm. to this handbook. And if you can reduce the temperature, it generally is a good thing. And both of those concepts are good for reliability and for the quality of the product. And it's and he says, if it does nothing else but encourage people to use fewer parts and keep the temperatures lower, it's all good. 
And and I said, ah, okay. I don't really get that, but yeah, I understand what you mean. The hard part is, is that once you get that first estimate and you use that to say, well, here's a rough guess how many spares and we're going to design this product, is that the team and or the reliability folks don't move off from it. They say, right. oh, we'll just update it. We'll just update it. We already got a model here. Well, it's just, we're not using that component. We'll take that out. Oh, it's looking better now. Okay, cool. And that's where the big problem is that it's people think it's actually a real number, which goes to your original example from that student saying, they're saying, well, it's justified by Milan Book 217. No. No, and, and that's that's uh, actually, <laughs> I had a conversation here with my students yesterday. And I said, that's one of the reasons I, I think there's a time and place for, for makers where the criticality analysis does have a more quantitative way of, of, uh, of, of, of characterizing how frequently failure mechanisms will occur. But I said, the main reason I don't like for makers is as soon as a failure rate is entered into a spreadsheet, it never changes. Yeah. So if you enter it in on the second day of your production schedule, it will never change. Not once I've ever seen it change. No one is motivated to. Everyone's scared to. Everyone likes referencing a number that can be, well, if I'm wrong, it's because that number's wrong over there. Who got it? I don't know. Some dude on day two. Oh, yeah. I had a student this summer that was exactly in that situation. It's like he started questioning, where did you get this value? And he says, well, you know, Joe, he retired four years ago. He just made it up. And, you know, well, let's get some real numbers on here. No, I completely agree. And that's, so I, I said, you know, even if we can convince ourselves that theoretically there is a, some sort of value associated with having a failure rate put into a spreadsheet somewhere to help inform us a, a decision later on, just be aware that I've never seen a failure rate change in a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so once it's in there culturally, it's sort of laminated for life, which means that the issue, it, it, it well, you, you well, you could argue there's a case of Mill's hand mill standard two seventeen and a very narrow let's let's be clear, it is a very narrow set of scenarios and decision making processes. Problem is once you get that fire rate written in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, it just permeates forever until the point where you have I know where you have suppliers saying, hey, our device, our generation six device meets the reliability requirement because Mill Handbook 217 says so. It says that our capacitor will have a failure rate of this. Right. Cool. Yeah. It's um well, it's a bigger issue though. And and it it's oh, yeah. similar to people that go, oh, we're gonna we need to create a reliability test plan. And so we'll use the one we did last time. And <laughs> I I I don't like that either. Um or, you know, we ran this test, so we have to run it again for comparison, right? Okay, why? <laughs> what decision are you making based on that? There's a whole lot of, and I, I, I steal your, I've stolen your phrase, I think you've said it a few times, is, oh. you know, reliability engineering does not include checking your brain at the door, or some <laughs> paraphrase of that. It's, yeah. Yeah, you don't take your jacket off and disconnect your cerebral cortex so that you can become a reliability engineer for the day. No, it requires thinking. You got to use the appropriate tools or the appropriate time for, uh, and move on, get the right tools for the current situation. And that requires thinking. And I think that's why people are often fiercely protective of that failure rate that's in some spreadsheet somewhere, because any admission that it might not be the right one, then 
becomes incumbent upon them to be uh, to be the ones who say, well, I know it's wrong. So ethically, I'm required to find the right one. Oh, that's a lot of work. You know what? I'm going to pretend it's right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, everything. that's a lot of unconscious processing people go through. I don't, I don't know that many people that are very deliberate about it, although I did meet one that was... Oh, no, I think it's very everything. subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I met one guy that was very conscious about it. And he was, and I said, so how do you justify that all of your components and all of your subsystems and all of these valves and pumps and bearings all have an exponential distribution? How do you have data that supports any of that? That's just unfallible. He says, well, we just assume it's exponential and then it doesn't have a problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wouldn't have been so bad except they're making systems for the, the national defense parts of the process you know kind of thing. and I, uh, okay you need uh, it just can't help you <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's it's it makes things challenging but i i, I mean i mean we can, we can, but coming back to the 217 I think we agree there are some cases where it can be useful, but it's chronically overused to essentially get a number which gives us plausible deniability to Yeah, that's the right phrase really for get... it. Yeah. Plausible <laughs> deniability. We, we got a number, you know, go with it. Um, yep. Yeah, that's unfortunate all the way through. So I think the the gist of this conversation is if somebody is using 217 in lieu of actually giving you a real value of the reliability of their system or subsystem or component, you need to really be suspicious and ask a lot of questions. Um, it's, it's, it sounds like your student kind of came to that realization. This, this doesn't mm -hmm. seem right, you know, and that's the core. If somebody's thrown out, oh, it's got a XYZ reliability, at least ask, how do you know that? And if you get a, a parts count prediction or, oh, we, my favorite by far was even worse than a parts count prediction. It was, this is, well, we shipped a million of these units and nobody's ever told us of any problem. Ah, whatsoever. No returns. Yes. No returns. And then they said, well, what do you mean you get no returns? And he says, well, the thousands we get per month are always user abuse. So we don't count those. <laughs> so that's even worse than assuming the exponential distribution but that might be the subject for a whole nother podcast that's that plausible yeah. deniability topic in general but no Look, um yeah. good topic uh, bottom line in my opinion even in the very rare cases because of its stickiness yeah is just avoided if you could, all can um and it's not just 217 it's any of the part count parts count type things um, they they just lead to bad outcomes in the long term, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, again, it's just that that other issue. Uh, even if you, I think what you're saying, even if you can justify its use for a narrow narrow range of decision making, problem is culturally organisations just laminate that fail rate forever and uh, stop thinking about it. So, yeah, which is a problem. It's 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 a huge problem, and uh, we haven't even spoken about how you know. Best guess, half of all failures occur at interfaces, which yeah. means components aren't interacting the way they were intended to be designed. The components are working fine, but the way they interact and interface causes problems. And of course, mill standard 
217F will never pick any of those things up. Yep. And also assumes that there is absolutely no merit in reliable design. There's no there's no point designing something reliable because it's all the all the fail rates are set in stone. Okay. And we haven't even started about, you know, uh, an example I did with my students yesterday is we had a pump which or valve, hypothetical valve, which had a mean time between failure of 1,300 hours. So if you service it every 200 hours, you could work out that the system would experience, on average, a failure every 33,000 hours. So uh, MTBF doesn't, it can be completely effectively changed by having servicing if you know how things fail. And uh, and again, that's where mill standard mill standard two seventy f gets people to stop thinking about what they can do. Yeah, and then well, the same with the other. There's uh, mechanical component databases and a bunch of others out there. Um, yeah, just say no. Just if it has MTBF just associated no. with it, just, just yeah, don't do that. Yeah, think about it instead. Now, now right. Chris, there is a small chance, or there's that we're wrong. That there's an at, perfectly good reason to use this stuff and we're just not aware yeah. of it it could happen so if you're listening to this and just yelling at the your headset going what in the world are they talking about let us know we'll either learn something or set you straight one way or the other but give us a shout head over to sendoverliability.com slash go slash sor and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us there chris and i and the other hosts of the show are available through linkedin and through our about pages on ascendo so plenty of ways for you to, to let us know what's on your mind or what questions you have. And as you know, we always look forward to hearing from you. So with that, Chris, I think I'm I think I actually have a copy of 217 somewhere around here. I'll have to go dust it off and just for old time's sake. Well, I knew you read it every night after I put the Bible down, so yeah. it doesn't surprise me in the slots. <laughs> no, I, I guess it got buried in the stack here someplace. I'll have to go find it. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you again soon. See you, Fred. Dave. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.